Well, this morning we are jumping into a study in Revelation, so pray for me over the next few months. I'm serious about that. I would love, love prayer always, but particularly going through this. This will carry us actually up till Thanksgiving. And uh, speaking of Thanksgiving, doesn't Thanksgiving weather sound really, really good right now? Can I just, I know, now you can cheer for that. Can I just offer you a little, I mean, the primary hope we offer is the gospel, but here's a secondary hope, and that is the weather is going to change someday, okay? It is going to get cooler someday. It is going to rain again someday. I, I just I can say that with absolute confidence. It is coming. It might be 105 every day for a few more weeks, but eventually it's coming. But we will be in the book of Revelation up through Thanksgiving and excited to go uh, through this study together. Let me lay out some ground rules on the front end, okay? Four, th or four things I want you to keep in mind. I don't know if ground rules is the right thing, but here, here's, here's where I want to begin. One is just the fact that we are going through the entire book. There are 22 chapters in Revelation. There are 15 weeks between now and Thanksgiving. So you can do the math and figure out we're going to have to move pretty quickly, which means that sometimes we'll lump some things together. We may not get into every detail as much as we would like, but we'll try to cover as much detail as we can. Number two, we will maintain unity even if we disagree on certain aspects. Because when you get into a, a study like this, there are different theologians that have different perspectives and, and things like that. Um, and we're going to maintain unity. I've seen this where people are, I mean, they're so dead set on this is it and this is the way it's to be understood and it can actually create some disharmony. We're not going to allow that to happen. Number three, we'll approach the book with diligent study and with humility. And that kind of ties into number two a little bit. Understanding that different scholars may have different views. There are places where I may have a very strong view, and I'll share that with you. Say, this is what I strongly believe. There are going to be others where I'm like, I'm, I'm still not sure. And we'll be honest about that. Here's some different ways to understand this. Um, but we're going to approach it with humility. Understanding that none of us has all the answers, that has it all figured out. And number four, and maybe this is my favorite one, we won't go weird. I don't know what it is about the book of Revelation that brings the weird out in people, but we're not going there, okay? We're not going to go weird. We're going to study this book, and we're going to dive into it. I mean, there's some weird stuff in the book, but we aren't going to go weird as we get into it. All right, enough about that. Revelation chapter 1, open your Bible with me. We're going to tackle the first chapter today. Starting with the first three verses, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. As we'll discuss more in, in a moment, this book says uh, was written by John, and same John that wrote the Gospel of John, that wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And uh, he is the, the disciple that Jesus loved as he describes himself. But it says that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. Probably sounds familiar, right? Sounds a lot like our word apocalypse. But here's a definition. I, I did, went to an online dictionary. It gave two definitions of the English term apocalypse. One, the complete final destruction of the world as described by the biblical book of Revelation. Or number two, an event in involving destruction or damage on an awesome or catastrophic scale. 
That's probably what we think of when we think of an apocalypse. But I want to encourage us to think of it in terms of what this word actually meant. And that means, it means to unveil or to reveal or to uncover. Now certainly there's some judgment and, you know, end of the world type stuff that we'll get to later in the book. But that's not primarily what Revelation is about. Revelation is about God revealing himself to us. And that's why I've chosen the title that I have for this series, and that is Hope Unveiled. It's God unveiling, like pulling the curtain back so that we can see more clearly and have hope. This same word is used in Luke 12, verse 2, where Jesus is talking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he says, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. That word disclosed, apocalypsis. That's, that's to reveal or to, to make known. So I want to start with that premise as we get into this book, which can be a little intimidating at times, with just reminding us that God wants to reveal himself to us. This book, Revelation, is about revelation. It's about God revealing himself to us. So let's remember that as we go into it. Yes, we need to do our homework and we need to study and, and, and all of that. Um, but this is all about God wanting to show himself to us. It is a letter that is intended for all of us. As we'll see in this passage in a moment and next week, we'll get into chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the churches. There were seven literal churches that this letter was sent to, but I'm convinced that it was also intended for all of God's people, for all the churches. There is a lot of symbolic language in this book because at the time that it was written, John, as we'll see in a moment, was exiled on an island. Uh, there was persecution that, that the church was undergoing, and so he wanted to be careful about anything that he wrote, not stirring up more problems for the churches, further persecution. So there is some symbolic language there uh, that he uses just to, I believe, so that it doesn't just come out and call people out specifically and create more problems, if that makes sense. Uh, but ultimately, it's talking about this is what's to come. God is revealing himself to us, and it says, just right there in verse 1 at the beginning, the things that must soon take place. When I read that word soon, I remind myself what the Bible says, that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. So from God's perspective, it's only been a couple of days since Jesus came. We see that term soon, and we're thinking, okay, how is it that it's been over 2,000 years? And, and by the way, I'll just tell you on the front end, my position, I'm a premillennialist, which means that I believe Jesus is coming back at some point in the future, will have a thousand-year reign, and that has not happened yet. Now, not everybody understands it that way, but that, that's where I'm coming from. But, so we might look and say, well, it's been a long time. Well, but still, it's coming soon, certainly from God's perspective, even if not from our perspective, Jesus is coming soon. And one thing we do know is that we're closer now than we ever have been at any point in, in history. Now remember that it, in early church history, there was a lot of uh, false teaching, and it was really important to correct those things, especially early on. But specifically, there was false teaching about the return of Christ. And some were teaching one of Paul's letters. He talks about some people have convinced you that Jesus has already returned, and it's not true, and don't believe it, and you'll know you know, when he does, every eye will see him. And, and similar idea here of, you know, this is coming at some point in the future, and he wanted to clarify that and make sure that the, the teaching being spread was accurate. He identifies himself in verse 2 as a witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
So John's role here is I just want to point to Jesus. That's what a witness does. A witness isn't about taking the limelight on himself or herself. The witness is talking about someone else or something else. And he says, I'm a witness to the word of God, to Jesus. So this book is about Jesus. It's about pointing our attention to Christ. And then at the end of verse 3, did you notice that last verse that I read? It pronounced a blessing over those who read this book. It's the only book in the Bible that specifically comes out and says, blessed are those who who read this aloud. Now certainly we know that we're blessed by reading other scripture as well, but there's something unique about the book of Revelation. Maybe God knew that we would be a little bit intimidated at times to jump into it, and so he pronounced a blessing. But those who read this book aloud, but then he says something more specific, and keep what is written in it. It's a good reminder at the very beginning of our study that any time we approach Scripture, the point is not just to understand it more or to figure out what it means. The point is to apply it to our lives. That's what we do when we come to the Bible. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 7 about the wise and the foolish builder. You remember this? One built on the sand, one built on the rock. You know the only difference between the wise and foolish builder? Both of them heard the words of God. But in one of them it says... He who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The one who heard these words of mine and did not put them into practice is like the fool that built his house on the sand. So it's not just hearing it and understanding it. The goal, in other words, is not just to have correct theology or to figure out, you know, our charts and all this, what's going to happen when and all that. I mean, that may make for interesting discussion, but the real point is, what are we learning about what God is revealing to himself that we are then applying to our lives? That's the hope and the goal as we go through any type of study, and that's certainly true in Revelation. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He begins there in verse 4 by extending this this, uh, greeting of grace and peace. But it says, from him who is, who was, and who is to come. It's a great reminder That this God that is revealing himself in Revelation is the same God who always has been, who is, who always will be. This is the same God from the book of Genesis all the way through the end of Revelation. And um, the Alpha, the Omega, as he'll describe himself later on in this chapter. And then he goes on after that and he talks about the seven spirits who are before his throne. It's important for us to have some grasp on what certain numbers mean, especially as we go through the book of Revelation. And I want to say on the, on the front end, we're not going to get into some really, because we're not going weird, remember? We're not going to get into some odd numerology thing where like you add up the number of all this and it spells, you know, your grandmother's middle name or whatever. I mean, you've heard that kind of stuff, right? Where it just kind of gets a little odd. But there are certain things that we need to understand about certain numbers and the symbolism of those numbers. And seven is a number you'll see a lot in this chapter and throughout the rest of the book. What does the number seven mean 
according to, to Scripture. And I, and I would just say we, the goal is to point back to other Scripture. We understand all Scripture and light of Scripture, but especially the book of Revelation. We need to have a foundation of the rest of the Bible before we can really accurately understand Revelation. Otherwise, it would be like taking a novel and turning to the last chapter in the novel and reading it without reading any of the, anything before that. You wouldn't understand, right? You don't know the characters. You don't know the plot. You don't know what's going on. Like you need some foundation to understand the last chapter. You need to read what came before it. That's Revelation. We need to understand the rest of Scripture. And for example, seven is a number that we see often throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. But the first time it shows up is in creation. God created on six different days, and then it says that he rested on the seventh day, right? So seven makes a complete week. Six days of creation, one day of rest, but it's completion there. Second Kings chapter 5 tells the story of Naaman, who had leprosy. He was told to go and dip in the Jordan River. How many times? Seven times. Again, seven representing completeness or fullness there. We are told that that uh, in the book of Joshua, that God told uh, the army to march around Jericho for how many days? Seven days. And then on the seventh day, how many times did they march around? Seven times before the walls fell down. Again, that, that seven is representing fullness or completeness. Think of it in terms of 100%. Okay, this is, this is everything. So when it talks about the seven spirits of God, it's not saying there are literally seven different spirits. It's the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits of God represents that this is the Holy Spirit and, and, and all is His fullness, there's nothing lacking. And then it goes on in verse 5 to describe Jesus. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Interesting to me that between verses 4 and 5, we see the Trinity. Do you notice that? God the Father is the one that it says, uh, from him who was, who, who is, who is to come. And then it talks about the seven spirits. It's, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus Christ. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all mentioned there. But Jesus is the faithful witness. Remember, John referred to himself as a witness to Jesus Christ. That's different. Jesus is the faithful witness. And he's the firstborn from among the dead. I would say that sets him apart, right? First one to ever be resurrected from the dead, never to die again. And he continues to live uh, even to this day. That's who we're talking about. And then the last description of Jesus is that he is the ruler of the kings on earth. And especially important reminder in a time where there were powerful kings on earth many of whom used their power to persecute the church and we'll see later in the book of revelation the, that martyrs it says the number of martyrs has not yet been completed and so there are still those being persecuted even to death because of their faith but he reminds them hey let me remember let, let me just remind you jesus is over all of those guys however powerful however brutal they may be Jesus is still in charge of all that and it seems that this theme keeps coming up over and over again this reminder that even when we go through difficult times in our lives and we go through painful seasons God's still in control God still has a plan God is doing something even in the midst of that and so the reminder that Jesus is in charge of that uh, is huge and then as he continues on, keep in mind, as we'll see in a moment, he's on this remote island. But he describes Jesus as the one who, and I quote, loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Isn't that fantastic that 
this prisoner who has been sent to an island, and he wasn't literally in a prison, but he was exiled to an island. So in a sense, he was a prisoner, is describing himself as free. He says that, that we, all of us who are believers in Jesus, that we have been freed by his blood. If you've been freed from your sins by the blood of Jesus, you get this, right? You know that sense of freedom that comes from um, being set free because of Christ. And I would emphasize it's by the blood of Jesus that we are set free. Maybe for some of you, you're still trying to figure that out and you feel like you're in bondage and you haven't found that freedom. And maybe that's because you're trying so hard to make it happen on your own. You're trying to figure out how do I overcome these addictions or how do I overcome these bad habits or how do I just get rid of this oppressive feeling? And, and my, how do I do that? And you work hard to make it happen. And you know, it, it might get better for a little while. You're trying to correct a bad habit or break some sinful habit in your life. And maybe you have some victory for a little while, but then guess what? Kind of comes, you just fall back into it again. Let me just tell you that, that freedom, real freedom, lasting freedom is only found through the blood of Christ. That's the whole point is that we can't do it ourselves. We are incapable of freeing ourselves. But that's why Jesus died for us. Jesus gave his life to set us free internally so that our sins could be forgiven. And so that we could have life in him. But he reminds them, not only are you freed from your sins, but he goes on and he says that you've been made a kingdom of priests forever. Now that's mind-blowing in, in, in light of how things worked in the Old Testament. You had to be born into the lineage of a priest. Not just anybody could serve as a priest. And only priests were allowed to perform the functions of worship. And so for John to say in, in other places in Scripture to talk about how every follower of Jesus has been brought into this this priestly family, that's, that's mind-blowing. We've been given direct access to God. We can lead others. I mean, all those things that come along with being a priest. And then toward the end of the section, it talks about how Jesus will return. Every eye will see him. And then it, it, it puts this little phrase there. It says, including those who pierced him. Man, you talk about being in, a, be, being in for a shock, right? If you didn't know who Jesus was, and the, those who pierced him would include not just those who literally drove the nails through his hands and feet, but those who approved of that. Those who didn't accept who he was. It's been a while since I've seen an episode of Undercover Boss, but there, there was a period of time. Did y'all ever watch that show? And you watch it, you, you know what that's about, right? The, 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 the Person in charge, a man or woman in charge, you know, puts on a disguise and pretends to be uh, a new employee or something like that. And so they kind of get the real feel. What's my company really like? And I remember watching one of those episodes when the CEO was having a conversation, dressed, you know, disguised as a new employee, was having a conversation with one of the current employees. And that person was just talking about how awful the CEO of that company was. <laughs> right? And you're watching that thinking, oh, this is going to be good. Because at the end of the show, they bring them in to the corporate headquarters and they find out who the person really is. And I mean, you talk about awkward when you've been complaining about the CEO to the CEO and you didn't know it. They're in for a surprise. But can I tell you that even that pales in comparison to the people who pierced Jesus not knowing who he was. They're going to find out one day who the real CEO is. They're going to they're have to answer to that. It's going to be like, whoa. In fact, it's not going to be pleasant. It says uh, at the end of verse 7 uh, that those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Well, let's keep reading and finish out the chapter. Verse 9, 
I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven, there it is again, golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am living forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John writes this, exiled on an island called Patmos. It was a Greek island in the Aegean Sea, uh, fairly small, a circumference of roughly 30 miles around the outside of this island. And we know from history that political prisoners and others were sent there uh, basically to silence their influence. So rather than putting John to death, again, remember he was the one who lived the longest of the disciples, which means that at that point in time, this is the, the last of the books that was written. John was pretty old by now. And that means that he was most likely the most influential Christian living because he was the one remaining who had eyewitnessed. He had written all these letters to the churches. And so they send him away rather than maybe giving fuel to the fire by making him a martyr. They send him to this island. But then even while he's there, it says the Lord appears to him. And I love this verse. And uh, we sang about this a little bit earlier, which is pretty cool. But Psalm 139, 7 through 10 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. You see, we, we talked about last week the fact that Jesus had his Gethsemane, his special place of meeting with God, and that's important. This is a reminder that God meets with us anywhere. Under any circumstances, there's no place that we will ever be that is too far away for him to meet with us. And so he meets with John and Patmos. He gives him this detailed vision. It says that he spoke and the voice was like a trumpet, which can you imagine how terrifying that'd be? It says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's in prayer, right? He's focusing. And then all of a sudden there's a voice like a trumpet. Can you imagine being, you know, in a quiet prayer and then somebody starts playing a trumpet behind you? It, it would have been startling to him, but he told him to write down what he was hearing we see that number seven again, the seven churches, it's defined in verse 20, uh, you know, what the, the seven stars and the seven churches meant. But he's to send this letter to the seven churches. I believe that that does mean, obviously, the literal churches that we'll see in chapters two and three next week. But I believe, again, that number seven is completeness. This was intended for all the churches, for all God's people. And man, what a vision of Jesus that, that John has. 
I mean, just to, to see the, you know, the, the glory radiating from Christ as it's described in verse 13 and 14. You know, the long robe, the golden sash, the hair on his head that was white, his eyes like flames of fire, feet were like burnished bronze. I mean, this is just the full glory of God on display. Now, John had gotten a little snapshot of this before because he was one that went up on the mountain with uh, Peter and James and, and Jesus, and Jesus was transfigured before him, and there it says that he began to, 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 to shine, and you know, his face was radiant and that kind of thing, but this has taken it to a whole other level. In fact, it says at the end of verse 16 um, that his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. I mean, stop and let that sink in for a minute. The power of the sun. Did you know that every second, the sun releases an amount of energy equivalent to 385 times a hydrogen bomb? Every second. In fact, it, it puts out uh, more energy. That's more energy every second than the entire earth uses in a year. And it says that the face of Jesus was like the sun shining in all of its strength. I mean, this is just a way to talk about the glory and the majesty of Christ. Again, bringing other parts of Scripture in, it's so cool to see how uh, we see Jesus in, in other places. But let me just read to you a few other Scriptures that will tie into what we see described here in Revelation 1. Daniel 7, 9 says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was like flaming fire. And his wheels were all ablaze. And then a little later, chapter Daniel 10, 5 and 6 says, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Isn't that amazing how similar that is? And then talking about the, the, the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God, who Jesus is the living word, is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, how do you think you would respond if you see Jesus in all of his glory like that? I mean, we see it in verse 17. John's response, it says that he fell on his face as though dead. He was so overwhelmed by the majesty of Christ. Now keep in mind, they were best buds, right? John described himself as the, the disciple that Jesus loved. He knew him intimately. He was intimately known by Jesus. But this is different. This is a different picture seeing the full glory of God, of his divinity on display, and he just falls on the ground as though dead. But Jesus, in his compassion comes up to him and it says that he put his right hand on him, which is significant too because the right hand is representative of full power and the, you know, the power of God. But he touched him. Jesus, this glorified one, while John is terrified on the ground before him and he's, he's fallen down as though dead, Jesus reaches down and he puts his hand on him and he touches him. And it's not the only time that we've seen him do that. Throughout Scripture, we see Jesus using physical touch I mean, the leper that came to Jesus and wanted to be healed, and Jesus touched him even though he didn't have to. We know that he touched the eyes of two blind men and gave them sight. He touched the ears of a deaf man and allowed him to hear. 
He touched Peter's mother-in-law and the fever left. Jesus used physical touch as an expression of the grace and the mercy that he wanted people to experience. And he does the same thing with John here, who is overwhelmed by his glory, and he touches him. He's like, it's going to be okay. Don't be afraid, John. It's going to be okay. I love that reminder that this majestic, awesome, the one whose face shines like in the full strength of the sun, that this Jesus that we worship, he is one who deserves our reverence. He deserves to have us completely submit to him and just take in the awe of who he is. And at the same time, he's the one who touches us. He's the one who has that, that personal touch in our lives. And he reminds John that it's going to be okay. And he tells him, I want you to write these things that you've seen, those that are and the things that are going to take place after this. And more than anything, here's the message of Revelation from the very beginning is that Jesus is in charge and he wins. I mean, if I could sum it up, that, that's Revelation. Jesus wins. You know, football season's about to start. I don't know if that's exciting to anybody else, but I'm looking forward to that. But one of the things that I do during football season, I often record games. And if it's something I'm interested in, I'll go back and watch it later. You don't have to watch all the commercials. It's wonderful. But every once in a while, I'll record a game, and it may finish before I even get started. And somehow, you know, maybe somebody will text or whatever, and I'll find out what happened, what the score of the game was before I actually watch it. Now, if I find out my team lost, I'm generally like, thank you for saving me, you know, an hour and a half or so of going through that. I'll just go on with the rest of my day. But sometimes if my team won, I'll still go back and watch it, right? And you know what happens when you're watching a game that you know your team won? It takes all the stress out. It's great. You could fall behind. You know, the other team can score. Things cannot go well. And every time it happens, it's like, but it's okay. We win, you know? I'll find out how. I don't know all the details yet of how we win, and I'm interested to see how all that comes together. But I do know right now, already, I'm not going to stress over it because we win. That's revelation. We know how the story ends. We know that Jesus is victorious, and because we belong to him, that ultimately we're victorious. Now, there are going to be some ups and downs, and they're going to, we're going to take our knocks, and maybe the other team might feel like they're ahead for a little while or whatever. But in the end, we win, and we can rest in that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the confidence that we can have. Thank you that you revealed yourself, that you've shown us what is to come. Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom as as I teach your word. I want to do so accurately. Um, Lord, so I pray for that. I I just pray that you would open our minds, that you would help us to, to see and hear what we need to see and hear, especially through... Uh, this study over the next few months so but Lord thank you for the encouragement thank you for the reminder Lord Jesus you are in charge we belong to you and there's victory in that and we're grateful for it in your name we pray amen